Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 113. You know, before I left for the Latin America Amateur Championship, I remembered that I'm out of town again this week. No, not another golf tournament. I got to work this week. So since I wasn't going to be in front of the microphone, I figured I'd get this episode loaded so we wouldn't skip a week. We don't do that around here. We bring episodes each and every week, interviews with amateurs, professionals, college players, college coaches, you name it. We do it every single week here at the back of the range. So you're not going to hear me talk about Mayakoba, the Latin America Amateur Championship in this episode. But if you want to see some amazing pictures and videos from Mayakoba, I know that I've posted them already on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So follow along there, subscribe in Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and go to the website, thebackoftherange.com to listen to all the previous episodes. In fact, there's probably some interviews up on the Instagram page. Maybe I grab some souvenirs that I'm giving them away. You want to go follow this podcast on Instagram. The handle is the Back of the Range Podcast. Once I get back home, once I get back in the studio, I will give a full recap of the lack and hopefully have some pretty cool announcements to make at that time. So this week's episode is Mike Muir from McLean, Virginia. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why is a former heavyweight boxing champion on the back of the range golf? But no, no, you're thinking of Michael Moore, different guy. But I'll tell you, if you're too young to remember when George Foreman knocked out Michael Moore to win the heavyweight championship at the age of 45, I will not be offended if you pause this and go look it up on YouTube because I just did that myself. In fact, I will actually put the link in the show notes of this episode to that clip on YouTube because, well, hey, the oldest heavyweight champion in history, got to show respect. No, Mike Muir, this week's guest, might not be someone that you're familiar with in the world of golf. His name is spelled a little bit differently. He did make it to the PGA Tour, but after a couple of years, he kind of disappeared. Mike eventually got back into playing golf on the amateur level. He basically got his status back so he could play in these member guests he kept getting invited to. But once that happened, the world of mid-amateur golf opened up and the cocktail circuit came calling. And before you know it, he was racking up wins at places like Pine Valley and Seminole. He competes on the national level, and while I've spoken with plenty of awesome mid-ams here at the back of the range, you got to put Mike Muir's resume up there with the best of them. So let's get started with this week's episode. I think you're really going to like this one. Mike, welcome to the back of the range. How are you? Great, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Um, you're coming off a pretty darn good couple of years. Uh, you win the Coleman at, um, at, at Seminole down here in South Florida in 2018. You win the Crump for the third time at Pine Valley in 2019. Um, let's 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 get it out of the way. What are you doing in 2020? Uh, Olympic run or uh, mass? What, what what are we doing in 2020? How are we going to top all this? I, I don't know, Ben. You know, I think I've mastered the uh, the cocktail tour. What what we refer to? Oh yeah, that run of the Crump and the Coleman and all that stuff. The George Thomas. So I um I don't know. Maybe that's just a, a my age or whatnot what or my, my uh, priorities, but I, I really enjoy the uh, playing with the old guys, the, the mid amateurs and, and have found uh, 
some success at, you know, some of these venues, some of the hall of venues. And, uh, you know, I get to pick my spots. I play two or three, sometimes four tournaments a year and, and at, at the best courses in the world and, uh, have a lot of fun doing it. So it's great. It's a great scene at these events. And I guess I just drive in that, uh, you know, the <laughs> little less pressure, not the pressure cooker of the PGA tour. Okay, so you mentioned the PGA Tour. You were you you played a, a a couple full seasons, and you know I know you you were on the um, nationwide tour, or whatever it was called at that particular time. It's obviously the Corn Ferry now, and I want to get back into yeah. your pro days and 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 help me out. But I got to talk about your career at Duke. I mean, I'm a Kansas guy, and I I have to talk to another Dukey. I can't believe I'm doing this to myself, but I'm going to do it anyway. But but you just mentioned something very interesting when you hear about players at the highest level they're like i gotta get my reps in i gotta play more tournaments i gotta get more tournament tough and you're telling me that you play three to four tournaments a year and these aren't just like your local county amateur these are the biggest and most competitive mid amateur tournaments in the world how are you succeeding without a whole lot of tournament experience annually um that's a good question maybe because it's my livelihood doesn't depend on it and i can just kind of go out and and uh <clears throat> you know, play the way I practice, which is, you know, you know, a few cocktails and, uh, <laughs> no pressure, no preparation and, and just let it go. And, um, again, you know, having played, I played almost 10 years professionally and it's just a, a completely different, different deal. And, um, you know, I was never much of a practicer back then either. And so it's just, I think the recipe for, for the, the type of golf I play now, it, it just works for me. I get to go out and and challenge myself, you know, again, three or four times a year against some of the best. And frankly, some of these mid amateur players, they are the best amateur players in the, in the world. Some of them, the guys like, you know, Harvey and, and Parziali and these guys, and they, they do play full schedules and they are really, really good. So well, yeah. to be able to challenge with those guys a couple of times a year is, is frankly enough for me. <laughs> well, I mean, the four semifinalists in the crump last year, it's you and Parziali, you took him down in, in extra holes. And then, um, and then Harvey had to go extra holes. He had to go 20 holes to take out Skip Berkmeyer. I have had those three guys on the podcast as well. So that schedule doesn't suit you. You don't see yourself being a full-time 10 to 15 event kind of a mid-am just chasing it around. No, even if I even if I wanted to, Ben, I couldn't. With a, I've got three kids, 12, 11, and and nine, with you know active in sports and a, and a job that doesn't really allow me to do that. And frankly, the three or four when I'm done, if I don't play really well, I'm I, I tend to remind myself why I don't do it for a living, but, um, it's, uh, it, it's enough for me. Um, you know, you know, my wife refers to me as America's guest cause, cause I can still play, a, a, you know, fairly well. And so, uh, I get invited to a, a lot of member guests. So I get, you know, outside of those three or four very competitive events, I get, you know, another four or five, uh, fun member guests and, and that takes up enough time all right so let's go let's go right there you're giving me you're, you're sending me in all different directions here that's fine so member guests what is maybe one of the member guests that you've been invited to where you get to the joint and you're like okay i've seen a lot of things i, I i've spent some time at pine valley i've spent some time at seminole but as far as like an over-the-top party not so much about, okay, grinding out, you know, nine footers for par, but an over-the-top party where you're like, man, I don't even care what we shoot. This is just fun. I got to get back to this thing. Yeah, there's there's a few of those. Um, the ones at, uh, like, at Congressional, that's a good one. There's actually one here locally at the TPC at Avenal. They do an incredible spread. Um, 
there's there's some that have Calcuttas. The one at, at the Trump course here in Virginia it used to be called Lowe's Island. I remember guest was a blast. We had a massive Calcutta that they've since gotten rid of. I think that you know it got around town and people were coming in <laughs> with inflated handicaps and just got a little out of out of whack. But um, one really good story was there's a there's a club out here in, in Northern Virginia called Creighton Farms. Really nice Nicholas design venue and. I was asked to play with a um, a guy that I knew pretty well. Our wives um, went to college together, and so it turns out it's you know the typical nine hole matches. And we he was a really bad golfer. I mean he he hadn't played in like fifteen or twenty years. He was a new member of the club. He thought he'd bring me in, and you know I knew more people than he did, frankly. And so we we're plugging along, but he's a good athlete, and I'm kind of coaching him around the golf course for the first two or three days. And we end up missing the the horse race by like a half a point. So okay. we're sitting around lunch and. And somebody says, "Oh, guys, you made the you made the horse races the wild card. You know the most points that didn't win their flight." And I said, "That's great. Well, what's the format?" And he said, "Well, the member has to tee off, and we're starting on 15. It's a pretty pretty severe penal par three, about 185 yards over a bunch of junk and almost an island green, and the member has to hit first. So I said, "Okay, that's great." So we drive out there. There's about 30 carts behind the green. There's about 10 behind us on the on the tee, and we're first up. And he says, "You know, what do you like? You like the hybrid, the two hybrid, the three hybrid?" I said, Heath, I think you should pull out your putter. He said, huh? I said, come down here. I showed him where there were no divots. I said, see this spot about three feet in front of the ball? Just putt it to right there. Don't hit it in any divots and don't hit it into the rough. And, you know, the guy, it's off. I, I like to say it's awfully lonely atop that mountain of pride. He had no problem. He pulled his putter out and tapped it about two feet. And the, the guys around the tee start laughing. And sure enough, the other, you know, 12 guys that got up, four of them hit it in the junk, a couple right. hit it in the bunker, a couple hit it in the woods. And it was my turn. I got up with a six iron ahead to a foot oh, and we won the God. horse race and it was beautiful. And, you know, it was a, I was around town that the rest of that year, I heard a couple of guys talking, Oh, there's this guy that made his partner hit putter off the tee and it became lore around here. It was pretty funny. And you know, that was one of the better member guest stories. He, he, he took it like a champ and, you know, no pride, just tapped it ahead and, and we won. That's so. uh, that's that a, it, I mean, that's a routine par in my book. I mean, that's uh, yeah, right. I mean, what's wrong with that? Uh, hey, there's no pictures on the scorecard, as they say. That is exactly right. Uh, we we won't. Uh, man, as as Clint Eastwood said a long time ago, man needs to know his limitations, right? I, so hey, you know, we, pretty high likelihood he would have dumped it in the junk with the the rest of them. I I don't even want to know what that thing paid out. <laughs> we'll just keep that. Uh, we'll keep that yeah. on, on the cutting room floor of this episode. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned, okay, so you mentioned you got three kids The you know, leads me into, you know, a little bit about junior golf, you know, all American, you're an all American in the late eighties at AJGA. And then, you know, went on to a great uh, college career at Duke. How did Duke come into the picture? Because if you're an all American and I'm just speculating, but you're an all American junior golfer probably had your choice of a lot of different places i'd imagine as as a kid you're thinking i'm going to play in the pga tour someday and duke is very challenging academically not saying you can't handle it but but you know is it a place you go that you want to get molded for the pga tour how did duke come to be yeah that's you've done your research all american as a junior that i was an ajga all american and, and one of the things that really pushed me towards duke i you know, you're allowed to visit five schools. I visited Stanford. Wally Goodwin's the coach. He was an amazing guy. In yeah. fact, um, Casey Martin and Nota Begay and I were all on the same recruiting visit the same weekend. Notre Dame was in playing Stanford, and they obviously ended up going there. And I just – I didn't love it. And um, I looked at UNC and UVA and Wake and, and Duke. And 
um, the, the, the fall prior I was playing in this, in an AJGA kind of their season ending event at Innisbrook. And I got, it's a match play event. It was called the Rolex at the time. I don't even know if they still have anything like it, but I got paired against this kid who was a year older than me. He was, I was maybe a junior in high school at the time. And his name was Jason Widener. And Jason absolutely wore me like a hat that day. I think he beat me like nine and eight. And I was pretty good. I think I ended up being maybe the second or third ranked junior my senior year. So I was a pretty good, you know, first team All-American, all that BS. And he ended up going to, to Duke. And I just had this revere for Jason. And, and we became really good friends at Duke. And um, I'd say he was one of the reasons um, I chose Duke. Obviously, there were much bigger reasons. Sure. But I love the school. It had, the, it had this great collegiate environment and great academics, great athletics. <clears throat> but um, the team was really becoming a powerhouse with, with Jason a year ahead of me. And they'd gotten another second-team All-American, a kid named Tom Hurley from Connecticut. And um, it just – my my good buddy from the AJJ, a kid named Aaron Cruz from Ohio, he was a second-team All-American. So we were stacked. Um and we just kind of all agreed to go there, and, and we had a we had a blast there. We we underachieved as a team because there was a lot of uh, you know a lot of um, time being you know dedicated towards just you know frankly being able to stay in school there. It's a really tough place, and, yeah. and so I think our golf suffered to some degree. Um, but we had a great time. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't give it up for anything. The experiences we all had there together, and um, I I always said that you know you can if you want to play on the PGA Tour you can you can go to. I think Zach Johnson went to Drake or someplace yeah, like that in yeah, Iowa. So you can go anywhere and do it if if you if you kind of have the the talent and the, the will after after college to to you know dedicate to doing it. So I was just going to say, so you're you're there at Duke, and gosh, I mean, as a Jayhawk, this pains me to say, but you're there. I think it's like your freshman and sophomore year when Duke basketball wins national championships. So I know it's a golf podcast, but. What is it like being on campus and also being an athlete? You're a little bit different than just the standard student, but what is it like being on campus when you got Hurley, Leitner, and Grand Hill, Grand Hill rolling around there? What is that life like? Well, well sorry to, to rehash probably a, a sensitive moment for you, but uh-huh. I was in Cameron Indoor Stadium watching the final game in, in 1991 when Duke beat Kansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grant Hill had the the big catch and the dunk, the alley oop dunk from half court. Yeah. Um, so it was it was a great time. I was the same age as Grant, and we had a class together. One I stayed for one summer. We had a class together and used to go hit golf balls at the driving range. But <laughs> obviously, those guys were were uh, you know celebrities on campus, and um, a lot of them are great guys. One guy and I've gotten to know pretty well since then is is a guy Jay Jay Billis who oh, yeah. not my same time but he's a wonderful guy and avid golfer uh, fellow member at a at a club up in New Jersey so um, that that's just a you know he he Coach K has done an awesome job you know raising these kids into really good people and um, yeah that, that was a great time to be there uh, uh, fortunate yeah. to to know a few of these guys yeah yeah well uh, because of that. Um I will. Uh, I will not be sending you a courtesy uh, a, a gift basket from the back of the Range Golf Podcast since you had to mention that that Kansas loss. But yeah, I, I just it's incredible what, what they've done, and then also you know obviously what Kansas has done. But I I, I wasn't on campus when KU was uh, when they won in 08. I was there around that ninety five ninety six time that Jacques Vaughn, uh, Rafe LaFrance, Oster yeah. kind of yeah. area era. So. Um, 
Well, Roy, those were the Roy I Williams know, years, right? Exactly right. right. No, you're 100 yeah. percent right. And Mac, I'll tell you what I got to tell you. Mac Gogol was is, was one of my very best friends and favorite people from when I was on the tour. Yeah, who's a Kansas boy, and uh, we had a lot of you know back and forth those those years. You know, kind of 2000 to 2003 when we we're running around together. Now he won he won his uh, lone tournament at Pebble, and then he runnered up to Tiger one year at Pebble. Um, I believe you've played Pebble. Is that is does it get much better than Pebble Beach on tour? You know what? It's um, it's it, I never understood. Some guys don't like to play the event because you're playing with celebrities or you know amateurs, and the weather's usually pretty crappy, and the greens, the Poana greens are bumpy. And frankly, it's just if I had one round of golf to play, it's at Pebble Beach, and um, it's just a magical place. And I remember the day when 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 he uh, he had he finished runner up and it was because tiger holed out that wedge on 16 spun it down the hill and in. And then I think he won the next year. Matt did. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they were consecutive years or maybe there was a year between, but I think it was the the next year that he came back and won it. Um, so he, he was a great player and a great, really fun guy. And, and, and that place is just, it's, it's magical. Love it. I read previously, um, and I think an interview you did, or, or just maybe some sort of a statement that you did a while back, where you you refer to yourself as a mediocre college player. Is that correct? That'd be fair to say. Um, I won one tournament. I won Stanford's tournament my sophomore year, and I, I might have finished second another six or seven times. So um, I just I didn't certainly was not an, a stellar college player. I was a I was a you know. A decent college player. Okay. Um, again, I I kind of let you know school get in the way of that, but that was all right. I I, I had a great experience, of, a very balanced yeah you know, time and, in my four years. Yeah, and the and you know the reason I'm asking that question is you know, not to you know pull out your your finishes on your college career, but just to illustrate the fact that you you get to the PGA Tour, um, you know, keep your card in 01, go and you know go again in 02. I mean, you had several years on the nationwide tour, but. I guess my question is, how do you look at your college playing career and then decide I'm going to turn professional and, and chase down the dream of making it to the PGA Tour? Were there factors that allowed you to make that decision as opposed to, well, here's what I did in college. I beat this guy, this guy, and this guy, and they're doing it. I'm, I'm just curious how that decision gets made. Yeah, it was never really that. I think it's kind of more of a um, you know a symptom of having golf just being a – the, the centerpiece of my childhood, I, you know, from a very young age, very competitive, got to, you know, be a very competitive junior golfer. And I was always a, maybe a little slower to move up into the age groups. You know, when I'd bump up to the 15 to 18 age group, it would take me a couple of years before I, you know, experienced a lot of success. And, you know, college, my senior year, I actually played pretty well. I, I finished second a couple of times, maybe three or four times. And, um, it was just kind of the natural progression. I figured, God, if I'm going to do this, I got to do it. Yeah. And uh, the alternative was probably law school. And I figured, you know, the, the world has enough lawyers. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I gave it a shot and I was, I was fortunate too. my, you know, financially, my parents sort of, you know, kind of semi-sponsored me. I raised, actually approached it kind of like a business. I, I, I put together a syndicate of, of sponsors, friends and, and acquaintances that chipped in kind of like betting on a horse and, and uh, you know, did that for three or four years and and they were they weren't really losing money by the end which is which was a, a good thing because yeah. typically those are you know throwing good money down the drain but um and each year i kind of progressed a little bit i played in europe my second year first year i just played wherever i could find a 
place to play. Second year I played in, in Europe for a year, which was my favorite year of all. Really? Um, just had an incredible time, lived in London and traveled to a different place, mostly in continental Europe every week. It was just, uh, it was incredible. Um, some, made, met some great, great people over there. I was one of two Americans at the time. Um, Craig Hainline being the other from Oklahoma state. And then, uh, you know, came back and got my card for the, what was then, I, I believe it was still the Nike. It, it became the, the buy.com tour. Right, right. Um, so I did that for four straight years. I was fully exempt. And each year just kind of got a little bit better. You know, I, maybe 80th on the money list my first year, then 50th. And my fourth year, I finished 21st, which got me, I just missed getting my card. And so I got right to the finals again that year and, and got through the finals in 2000. So it was a culmination of, you know, six or seven years of just kind of paying my dues. And um, there were a couple of, a couple points in time where I, I really thought maybe I'd, I'd, I'd done it and I was ready to move on and and do something else away from golf. And, you know, I think I look back, there were a couple, you know, a couple little pivot points that it could have gone sideways or could have gone the wrong way. One of them being I was playing at second stage at a place called Greenleaf Resort, which oh, I think God, I is, a, Haines, is a cow Haines, field now. Haines City, Florida. I've played Haines it. Haines City, Florida. And it, I'll tell you what, it was a awesome, I want to say it was a Robert Trent Jones golf course middle of Florida and they always overseeded it for Q school. And it was a fantastic test of golf. I would say back then when it was really kept up one of the top, probably 10 courses in Florida. And, um, it was a second stage and I was in a playoff for an alternate spot, which, you know, nobody doesn't show up for the right. finals of Q school. And I was in a, in a playoff with Jim McGovern, who oh, yeah. was you know multiple winner on tour and he could have cared less. And, you know, but I was 20, whatever, 27 years old and had nothing better to do. So we went out and, and uh, he just kind of half-assed it around. I, I won the playoff and became an alternate. Well, it turns out um, I was still kind of conditional on the on the web.com or, you know, what was then the nationwide or buy.com. I think it was buy.com. And so I showed up at um, – I had finished top 25 the last event of the year. Um, even though I didn't have much status, I showed up at the next event and because I was an alternate, I had status on that tour for that year. Wow. And, um, I showed up, I finished top 25, the first event of the year, which got me to the next one. I finished top 25 again. I just, I literally parlayed that, that alternate spot from second stage into being, you know, conditional and fully exempt on that tour that year. And then two years later I get through Q school and I, I really was close to, packing it in at that point if i had no status i, I would have i would have gotten a job at that point so you're saying if uh if jim mcgovern wakes up in a different mood that day that could really have altered the tr absolutely okay interesting yeah yeah wow. that was a that was a real pivot point and i and i knew it at the time you know a couple of weeks in, i'm like huh i was ready to bag it here a couple months ago and i, I got some momentum and, and and i think i finished 21st that year on the on the nationwide did you ever cross paths with jim mcgovern after that a bunch of times oh sure we played on the tour a few times yeah. after that i just i just saw him this summer as a matter of fact i does he know this story uh, you know i don't know if he does i he's such an awesome guy I, I i ran a charity event after i quit playing golf yeah. um here in dc for 10 years and he would always come and support it and just a he was one of the just the good dudes he um you know, never took himself too seriously. Always a pleasure to be on the golf course with. Treated people really, really well around him. He's now the head pro, I think, at White Beaches up in New Jersey. So I saw him this summer, actually. I went up and played the New Jersey Open just 
my kids were away at camp and I uh, needed something to do. And, and it was at Trump Bedminster, which is a great track. So I bumped into him in the locker room and we, we had a few laughs about the old days, but he's, he's doing well. And, you know, it, where he grew up in, in North Jersey. So, um, I don't know if he knows the story. I, I, I probably well, we'll we'll, that, we'll have to we'll have to make sure he gets a gets this uh, gets this episode on his phone so he can listen yeah, to it. So yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned you you get up there to the and you know this is I think we're just about the same age. I think it might be a couple of years younger, but you know, right around that time, um, you know, I started really following golf. And you know, two thousand one is that first full season that you're on the PGA Tour, and that's I believe is the Masters is when Tiger completed the Tiger Slam and. You know, there's these big hitters that are on the tour, but I'm looking at a lot of the names that won that year, and you have, you know, a Scott Verplank, and and you have a Chris DeMarco and Bob Estes, who I just talked to a, a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think that the distance explosion had quite started yet. I know there are some of the outliers, but tell yeah. me, tell me about your game and about maybe the, just the the culture, so to speak, on the PGA Tour, because it's like it's like almost like it's at that gap where things are about to go in that direction where you got, well, it's, it's all correlated with 2002 is when the pro V one. Pro V one, Yeah. Yep. And so, and I know that because I, I was a, I was a pretty average, um, driver of the golf ball. I wasn't really, really long by any means. I was probably on the shorter side of average and I wasn't really straight either. Okay. Um, I had a really, really solid iron game. And the reason I remember 2002 being the, the, that transformative year was, it was my second year on on tour, and driving distances literally went through the roof that year because of that golf ball. It went from I want to say the average was like two seventy to two eighty two or something like that, which is a pretty big jump. Now right. it's probably three hundred yards, but um, and my driving distance went down twelve yards because you didn't switch the ball. It, no, no. It, well, I didn't switch the ball, but also in hindsight, um, I, I don't know if you read this, but I had stage four cancer. My my caddy, I was always, you know, instead of practicing after golf, again, I was never a big practicer, but typically, if good or bad, you'd want to go hit balls. And I was always just, you know, buddy, I'm going to head back to the hotel. I don't, I don't feel up for it. And right. so, uh, you know, in hindsight, when when everybody else was getting longer, I was getting shorter um, for health reasons. So, um, you know, but back to your question, I was a pretty average. I was average at everything, really, frankly, with the exception of iron play. Um, and if I putted really, really well on certain days, I'd have a, I'd have good scores. But, um, you know, I think the way the golf courses are set up now, if you don't hit it 300 yards and, and pretty straight, you have a very short career on, you know, ahead, of, ahead of you on tour. Yeah. It's a different game. So, um, you know, I wanted to ask, I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to ask this question, but there were two PGA Tour events that were canceled at the very close of that season. There was the event in Tampa, which I, I'm assuming most mm-hmm. people, you know, think about the Valspar. Um, it was at the, actually at the end of the, the calendar year. And then there's also a WGC event that was canceled. And it was canceled due to 9-11. And I don't think I've ever had the chance to talk to anyone that was playing on the tour that year. Um, or I've never had the, the thought to ask it, but do you remember mm-hmm. how that changed the culture or how it affected things on the PGA Tour, whether it's about travel or maybe even size of galleries? I'm just curious if you remember anything specific that jumped out at that time. Um, you know, I, it's one of those things where you all, everybody remembers where they were at 9-11. Right. I, was on the, I was on the island course at Innisbrook playing a, uh, a pro-am. Yeah. Uh, we had gone through the turnhouse and saw – 
the towers on fire and we were all just kind of dazed. We went to the, onto the back nine and, and then we heard that the towers fell. And so we all, we all walked off the golf course and then, you know, we were, we were stuck in Tampa. Obviously all flights were canceled. And after about two days, when it looked like, you know, uh, they, they canceled the event, I think the next day. And so we waited another day to see when we could get out of there. And it, it was, became evident that we weren't going anywhere anytime soon. So I drove home to DC from Tampa with a JJ Henry's caddy who was going on to Connecticut. But, um, and then the next week, ironically, we were in, in, uh, the 84 lumber in, in Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, about 20 minutes from where the, the, uh, the other plane crashed in Somerset, Pennsylvania. And, it, you know, driving around up there, all these little small towns, they were all, all the hotels were filled with the, the black crown Vicks, you know, all the FBI cars. Sure. And so it was, it was surreal going from one to the, to the next. And, and, you know, the, the, that plane flew right over the golf course, Laurel Valley, where we played, um, so yeah, it's one of those things I remember exactly where I was and, and, uh, and I was right on the cusp of, of keeping or not keeping my card. I was, you know, right on that 125 bubble. And right. so, you know, those, those events were really valuable to me, but obviously that was not even a concern at that point. I think we still had four or five events left and, um, I had a couple good finishes, I think just prior to that. And, uh, gosh, I remember I missed the cut in the final event of the year it was Mississippi and, you know, it just, it was just, um, one of those things I had to sit and wait and it was brutal. I remember, uh, I think I ended up finishing 121st, um, but it could have gone, could have gone the wrong way. You know, I was hitting refresh on the laptop every 10 minutes to see who was going to make the cut and who wasn't. And it worked out all right. So, um, I, I, I know you see, you kept your card for, for 2002 and I guess the casual golf fan would, if they're looking at you know where things went in 2002 2003 they would say oh this this guy's you know lost his game and he's back down at the at the nationwide tour buy.com whatever you want to call it but there's a pretty specific reason and and thing that kind of took you off the tour that perhaps the like i said the casual golf fan probably might have missed so i mean what was kind of happening in in 2002 that kind of led to uh, you being off the tour couple of years after I was done playing, got, you know, I bumped into somebody, oh, Mike, I haven't seen you. What you been doing? And Because you know, it's such a transitive type of career. Yeah. You know, guys are coming and going all the time. You don't even realize, like, oh, geez, so-and-so is not around anymore. And, um, so I had played almost a full season, 20-some events. I want to say 25 events in 2002. And um, in the mid-August or late August, I had been home for a week and went to see my derm, and, and she took off a – a mole off of my Achilles area, right above my shoe line on the back of my foot. And I was playing in Scott McCarran's pro-am in Sacramento right after Reno Tahoe, um, the following week. And she called me and, and said, geez, you know, um, the, the lesion that we took off, you need to come back. It's melanoma and it's deep enough and, um, severe enough that we're gonna have to take, you know, much larger margins, check lymph nodes, et cetera. And, and just out of ignorance, I thought, geez, just cut it out and I'll be on my way. Right. And, um, it turned out it was, you know, metastasized in my lymph nodes and moving around in my, in my body. So stage four, I had to, you know, really there was very few treatments at the time. And, um, you know, meeting with some oncologists, the one I, I ended up uh, seeing for the next 20 years, still see to this day at Johns Hopkins, uh, essentially told me based on the, the severity of my, lesion and the fact that it was metastasized and in my lymph nodes in my groin area that I probably had a 35% chance of making it past five years. Wow. And, 
And he said, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a professional golfer. He says, so you mean you're out on the driving range? I said, no, I'm, oh, I play, you know, I'm on the tour and I, I'm out, you know, seven days a week or, you know, sometimes five. If I missed the cut, but, uh, and he says, okay, well, let's remove that, lower that down to 25%. And so that was a, that was a, um, red light for me. It was a easy decision to, to walk away from, from golf. And, and, uh, I ended up, I had like 10 events left in 2003. So I, after a year of treatments, I went out and just kind of kicked it around for those 10 events and, and knew I'd already made my decision, but I didn't, I didn't, frankly, didn't know what I wanted to do for a living at that point. And so I, I went out and played out the, the medical and ironically the last tournament as a professional was at pebble beach it was the um callaway invitational i think it's a tailor-made sponsored event now it's in november and same format as the eight as the at&t and uh, a bunch of pros you know 80 pros from all the different tours and i was leading the event on on sunday at pebble beach playing with john daly and todd fisher and bo van pelt the four of us together and okay. i had like a two-shot lead and i'm playing with john daly and we're through like eight or nine holes and I'm playing great. The weather's beautiful at Pebble Beach. And I tell him I'm, I'm quitting the next day. He, he literally couldn't get his head around it. What do you mean? I said, well, I'm going to go get a job. He's like, what do you mean? Like, this is your job. So <laughs> I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm packing it. I got a, I got a job lined up as a, as an agent. And, and, uh, it was really funny just to get his kind of reaction, <laughs> but he ended up birdieing five or six of the last 10 holes and, 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 Beat me by three okay, or four. So, so, so it didn't bother him that much, is what you're saying. But it's still no, it didn't right, bother. Yeah. No, 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 no. But he just couldn't get his head around that concept. It was pretty funny. And, wow. Um. So, and frankly, I haven't looked back. I, I was a, I would have been a, a marginal tour player, kind of the guy who's always on the cusp. A good year, I might have finished fiftieth or seventieth. A bad year, I'd, I'd be outside looking in and right. uh, and back on the on the on the web dot com or the Corn Ferry Tour, and um. And so it would always have been a, a, a you know, a, a grueling nomadic thing for me to, to bounce around. And, um, you know, I was, as I was ready, I, I had no regrets at that point. And frankly, was the luckiest guy walking around. Sure. Be, you know, so. Wow. So you mentioned, uh, and, and health wise, you're good now. I mean, I'm not. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm, I'm almost 20 years removed. Yeah. I'm, 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 uh, I guess, you know, eight, 18 years removed now. And I did a, a an experimental kind of vaccine uh, form of immunotherapy that was the precursor for all the PD-1 drugs that are out on market now. And so I was really, really lucky. And, uh, you know, I, I had some more PET scans and CAT scans. And, uh, you know, I, I eventually told my oncologist, if, if melanoma isn't going to kill me, all these scans are all the all the nuclear medicine they're pumping into me. So yeah. I was really lucky. And, and in hindsight, you know, um, I, I was in the right place at the right time to, to get the, the right treatment. So, well, that's, uh, Here. that's great for that. So, um, yeah, let's move. You mentioned something I want to hit on. Uh, you mentioned, um, you transitioned your first job was being, was being an agent. So you go to, I believe it's Octagon, you go to Crown Sports, you're, you're an agent. So what is that transition like? You're normally, you're out on tour playing and now you're an agent for some of the guys that are out on tour. What were your responsibilities, um, you know, right off the bat as, as an agent? Yeah, that was, you know, it was the path of least resistance, I think, Ben. I just, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Okay. And I thought, geez, I can go, you know, I know all these guys, um, my agents at the time were were um, Octagon and and Jimmy Johnston, who I had known for a long time back 
my early days playing. He had played at Georgia Tech, awesome player, and a great guy. Um, he had just moved to Sea Island uh, to work with Mac Barnhart. Um, they were both uh, – Mac was down in Sea Island handling all the Davis Love stuff and some of the other um, clients that they had bought. You know, they had bought Vinny Giles' company called Prozinc in Richmond, and so they had – Justin Leonard and, and uh, Tom Kite and a you know, really nice client base. And so we were at Octagon, the three of us, and then we thought, geez, we should be doing this, hang our own shingle out. And so we, we broke off and started Crown Sports and based in Sea Island. And we immediately got all these guys, um, you know, Jonathan Bird and Lucas Glover and Boo Weekly. Um, Kucher, I think, right? You know, Brant Snedeker. Kucher was after the fact. He wasn't there when I was there. Um Boo Weekly was one, um, Joe Durant, just really good guys, good yeah. guys that were personable that we could sell. And, um, I thought it was going to be a, a, an, an easy thing to do. And it turns out it was, it was really not cut out. I was not cut out for it. I just, um, it was a really, um, mundane kind of existence. You, you go out and, you know, glad hand on the range and, and take guys to dinner and, and, uh, constantly tried to trying to uh prove your your value and your worth and your 15 percent you know to the guys and right um you know frankly in hindsight i think there's probably 25 guys that need an agent on tour the rest could probably do a lot of it themselves if they wanted to okay so uh, it just you know it, it um the writing was on the wall for me i did it for a couple of years and and uh um you know eventually realized that i had to move on so finance is something that I always kind of wanted to do and follow the stock market as a, as a young kid and, um, uh, moved, you know, transitioned over to, to wealth management. You know, I think most casual golf fans, you know, maybe they know of Tiger's agent, Mark Steinberg, maybe they know mm -hmm. Chubby Chandler who handled uh, Rory and, and Westwood and, and that crew and Graham McDowell, but they probably don't know a lot more about agents and what they tend to deal with. Um, you know, not to walk you back through every single role and responsibility you had, but, you know, what does an agent do? Um, maybe like, what's the fire that you always had to kind of put out? Or, you know, what would an agent's role be during a time where maybe a player kind of gets, you know, caught up in the air in an interview or has to withdraw last minute and there's media? Like, what are maybe some of the things that maybe the casual golf fan does not understand of, uh, doesn't understand that, that an agent actually steps in and takes care of for the player? It's all comes. It's from player to player. I think some of the the really um, high level players that have a lot of scrutiny and a lot of uh, media interaction. There's probably a lot more for uh, for a for an agent to get involved with on a day to day basis. And I can't really speak as much to that as you know what we were doing was uh, you know negotiating contracts mostly with the manufacturers on behalf of the players, constantly you know introducing. Uh, a, a new opportunity, whether, you know, typically in the off season, if they wanted to switch equipment, um, we were out, um, you know, trying to find corporate endorsements, um, appearance fees, that type of thing. Um, and really just kind of being a, an advisor to them, um, in terms of the, you know, the, the day to day stuff, it was, you know, gosh, I just didn't, I just didn't enjoy that stuff. And so I didn't, I didn't do it. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, t a tiger's needs are a lot different than than Boo Weekly's needs, right? And and <laughs> I'd uh, love to know what Boo Weekly's needs were. <laughs> yeah, I don't. They weren't. They weren't many. Um, <laughs> he 
he was a pretty he was a pretty simple dude and a lot of fun funny guy oh my gosh there was an orangutan story that's just priceless i don't even know if i'm at liberty to say but it's a it's a it's a classic but maybe you can get boo on your on your uh you got to get boo on your I, podcast i would love to have boo on the podcast i would I yeah mean, yeah i'll let him tell the orangutan story because it's it's amazing okay but but yeah i mean it's um it, it's it's not it's not jerry Maguire by any means it's uh you know i think steiny did a great job with with tiger and and you know he saw the the writing on the wall and broke off and kind of did his own thing there. And, um, it's very competitive. The guys, there's a lot, you know, I'd say there's a handful of agencies that kind of control probably 90% of the, of the players on tour. And right. when I say control, you know, represent right. 90% of the players on tour. And they, um, mostly, mostly really good guys. There's some that I wouldn't necessarily want to hang out with, but they're all really competitive and, um, you know, but, but at the same time, they, 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 they play well together. And, um, I still, you know, I, I like a lot of those guys. I, I, it wasn't the people. I just didn't really love the work. Right. So, um, it was, it was pretty, pretty mundane. You know, at this time you're, you're not playing professionally anymore. You, you, you're an agent for a couple of years and you get into the financial space. What did you really know about the, as you said, the cocktail circuit, mid amateur golf? When did, when did that start taking shape where you're like, Hey, you know, I kind of want to kick it around a little bit, which you can do in, member guests um you can do i mean well i guess you probably had to get your amateur status back to playing those member guests didn't you i did so i i last played professionally in in like the summer of 2003 okay and so i really didn't play anything for four years and um i was uh gosh i was just looking at the, the schedule of amateur events and that year the the u.s amateur was at olympic club and the u.s mid amateur was it banned in dunes? I thought, geez, that sounds pretty good. You know, yeah. frankly, on the, frankly, the, the PGA tour does not play good golf courses, believe it or not. They play 15 TPC courses, which are fine. Right. They're, they're, you know, they're okay. And TPC at Sawgrass is awesome, but the rest of them are, you know, they're, they're serviceable, but they're not great golf courses. They do not get to play the classics outside of the, the U S open rotation. And, you know, geez, if I could qualify for the U.S. So I went out and I first wrote a letter to the USGA and said, I'm interested in getting my amateur status back. I had to tell them how much money I made, how long I played, and when was the last time I played. And I got a letter back immediately saying, you're good to go. So I, I okay, qualified no, for the wait, amateur. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me, <laughs> let's just slow this down real quick. You wrote a letter saying, hi, played, you know, X amount of years on the nationwide buy.com. I was a card carrying member on the PGA tour for two full years and you write a letter, and they said, all right, fine. I mean, that's how it went? That's how it went. They said, when was the last time you played? I said, four years. So that became my waiting period. And frankly, at the time, it was a two-year. You had to, If you made any money uh, and played any extensively whatsoever, it was going to be at least a two-year wait. Okay. And I, I've heard of – I've got one, one story since then of an eight-year wait, but – um, I didn't make a ton of money. I think over my over my PGA Tour career, I might have made a million bucks between the tour and right. Uh, you know, we keep calling it a different name today's Corn Ferry Tour. So, um, you know, it wasn't a, a lifetime career for me. And so, after four years, I said, "Yeah, your your that waiting period satisfies you know what we you know see as somebody who's fully removed from professional golf." And so. Um, Ironically, I was up at Pine Valley playing. Somebody invited me to go up there, and I got paired with 
uh, Gordon Brewer, who was the president of the club at the time and a yeah. senior legend. And um, I played really well. We were playing a, a two guys from the UK in a, in a little match, and, and Gordon and I beat them pretty handily. It was their two best players. And and he said, um, I'll never forget, we're sitting at lunch. He says, well, Michael, how would you like to play in the Crump Cup? I said, well, geez, Mr. Brewer, that, that would be fantastic. And I had to I had to look up what the heck the Crump Cup was because I had no clue, <laughs> right. to be honest. And and uh, so sure enough, three months later, I was invited to play in the Crump and wasn't ready and did not make the championship flight and and, and then won like 12 matches straight going into the following year. I won it and I was medalist and won the tournament. And um, so kind of got entrenched into the, the cocktail tour at that point. But it was just really by chance uh, getting paired with Gordon Brewer that, I mean, it might have inevitably happened later, you know, further down the road, but that's that's how I got first introduced to it. Is it even possible to compare the environment around a typical PGA Tour event with something like the Crump or the Coleman? No, no, but I'll tell you what, the, the European Tour is very much like the mid-amateur circuit. Really? Um, okay. It's very, I mean, very much like it. Um, in Europe, everybody pretty much stays at two hotels because there's a couple travel companies that orchestrate the travel for all the, you know, everybody just buys the travel package to XYZ event. So they, it includes airfare, hotel, you know, transfers, all that stuff. And so you end up having, you know, 50 or 60 guys at a place and, uh, and, and it, this may have changed, but we'd all, you know, meet up for dinner. Everybody go to dinner together. Nobody traveled with their families or their wives. It was just guys on their own. And, uh, you know, after golf guys would practice, but then they'd go into the bar, they'd have a, they'd have a couple beers and they'd, they'd be really happy for you. If you played well, they were, they were honestly, you know, happy for you. Yeah. And versus, versus the tour here where guys would go grind for three or four hours, they'd go back, they'd, you know, order room service or a couple guys would might, you know, single guys might go out for a couple pops, but very little camaraderie. And, and I think it's, a, again, probably just as a result of you're playing for so much money. Yeah. That, you know, you know, the guys just weren't out screwing around. And so in Europe, it was a different deal. Um, guys would definitely be up and having drinks late and, and, and getting after it the next day. But, uh, and that's kind of what, you know, th this, uh, mid am circuit is like a lot of really good guys from a lot of walks of life and different stages. There's the young guys that are in their twenties that are, you know, kind of reliving the glory days of, uh, you know, mini tour golf, likely a lot of them. And, uh, then there's the older guys that have families and looking to get away for a few days and, and, uh, and compete. So, but everybody ends up in the bar, uh, you know, hanging out together. It's a lot of fun. All right. Let's, uh, let's not exactly throw some of these guys under the bus, but let's just see if we can see if I can highlight. So if I, who, who if you're at a, at one of the bars or you're kind of shutting down the, the, the grill room at a club after an event, who am I most likely to find in there with you? Uh, do you mean on the, the mid-amateur circuit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the cocktails. I'm not talking about like PGA Tour stuff. I'm talking about uh, like there's, I mean, there's a couple. Yeah, there's a couple guys that you that are if, absolutely. If I walk in, if I walk in and I see A, B, and C, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be a good night. We're going to tell some funny stories. We're going we're gonna to have some fun here. Um, there guys like Brett Williams, he, he's a beauty. He played at Ohio state, young guy from Baltimore. He's, he's a blast. Matthew Swan from Atlanta. Um, Jeff Osberg is probably, I think the best mid amateur player who just hasn't been able to polish his game. Like it should be. He actually, I think was either the, 
he might have been the medalist in the U.S. Amateur a couple of years ago when when the kid won it at Cherry Hills. I can't remember the guy's name, but um, Jeff was like the number one or two seed, and and this kid beat him, but um, eventually won it. But um, Jeff Osberg is a, a big stud of a player. I mean, six four hits at three thirty. I mean, he 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 could compete with the young guys, but he's he really competes at the bar. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to think of some of the other guys that are out there. Um, Geronimo, um, he's Mr. a great guy. Mr. He's Esteve. A, Esteve, yep. Uh, really fun guy. Um, you know, there's a bunch of them. And uh, Jamie Miller is a great guy that, that likes to get after it. I, I could go down the list. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it, they're the they're the uh, the norm, not the exception, When when to, to find guys that want to hang out. And uh, Owen O'Connell is a legend, I'd say. He's, uh-huh. His game isn't where it used to be, but um in the bar he's like a plus eight and uh he's a he's a fantastic guy and uh, you know a legend when it comes to amateur golf you know having been a walker cupper and and just an absolute stud from from northern ireland but um he's he's a usual suspect so we we kind of joke with one another that you know we can kind of expect to see one another at the bar at pine valley late there you go there you go um, I want to get you out of here on, on just a couple more. You've been awesome with your time, but you know, I, I, yeah. I almost forgot to ask you, you know, I, I can't even fathom the amount of Monday qualifiers or Q school rounds that you've played in your life and not to, not to expose any old wounds, but to kind of illuminate just how tough it is to make it out there, especially, um, you know, the path that you did with, with going through the developmental tours in Q school, but you know, anytime a young hotshot college player might be, you know, playing a, a practice round with you or telling you how he's going to go play professionally and do this and do that, do you ever have that one story packed away uh, just for that rainy day where you can say, look, this is exactly what it's like and this is exactly how hard it can be or how heartbreaking it can be to try and make it as a professional? I'm sure as an agent you must have had that story but um, or had that story at that time. Do, do you have that one story? You know, there, there's a couple stories, uh, horror stories, not for me personally, but some some people that I witnessed firsthand. I mean, a, a good friend of mine from going back to when we were 13, 14 years old was a kid named Jackson Brigman. And I don't know if I you know, remember I Jackson. Know, I, he played at Oklahoma State. Yep. Yeah, he's from Abilene, Texas, and awesome player as a kid. Played at Oklahoma State. Um, spent a bunch of years on the on the, what's now the Corn Ferry, and uh, at the Q School at Doral, final stage, final day final hole he uh he makes par to make it on the number and a guy named jay hobby from who played at auburn is keeping his scorecard and they turn in their scores and jackson's elated he's over at the scoreboard and they put his score up and he's one over the number and he freaks out he goes over and goes to the scoring table and says you know look you got the wrong score for me i was at you know whatever the number is 327 or whatever it is and uh i was at 326 and they say, well, let's get your scorecard. And they look at the scorecard. And Jay had put down a five on 18, and he had a four. Now, this happened five minutes ago. Like, you know, Obviously, it wasn't malicious. It was just an oversight. Right. They both missed it. He signed the card, takes the five, misses getting his tour card by a shot, and is basically never to be seen again. And, you know, talk about a, just a bad luck deal. Uh, horror story. And you know, there's, there's others where guys just, I remember, um, Tim O'Neill, who was a really good player, uh, finished bogey, triple bogey 
at PGA West to miss by a shot. Same thing. Never to be seen again. Uh, he never got his card after that. He was, he, I mean, he, he could finish bogey double and get his card. And yep. there's just a fine, fine line. And it kind of goes back to me at that, you know, getting that alternate shot spot at, uh, at the Greenleaf that year. It's like it could really go one way or the other based on a lucky bounce or a lucky, you know, something lucky happens or, or you, you, you know, you, you, you pull something out at the end. Um, me personally, I, I think that was the one memorable thing that went in my favor. Um, in, in terms of, you know, God, what they're in for, what these young studs are in for that, you know, the, the best players in college, I, I just don't think they realize how many good players there are that they've never heard of that have oh, been no. out there for 10 years that have been doing it for 10 years and they've, they've cut their teeth and they, they've been grinded and they know the golf courses. And, um, a lot of these kids are just can't miss kids. They just, they just don't make it. Um, just the numbers are so stacked against them, even if they're, you know, first team all American in college. Um, and then the lifestyle, it's really people, some guys just really struggle with it. You know, you're, you're on the road for four or five weeks. You're, you're, you're spending time in laundromats, in Wichita, Kansas, nothing against Kansas. That might not be a good wow. example for wow. you. For you, but I'm kidding. Go ahead. But how about uh, you know Sioux City, Iowa, or some of these places we used to play, where you're in a laundromat with, you know, not in the nicest neighborhoods, and you're sitting there for four hours doing your laundries. It's it's just it's like the lowest of lows. Right. While your you know your peers are are back in Chicago or New York or D.C. and they're working and they're having a social life, and you're out and you know going from small town to small town. It, it it's pretty, it's kind of like the circus, right? The circus packs up and you move on and take your stuff and sit down and that's your home for a week. And then you move on to the next one. It's, it's pretty grueling. So not everybody's cut out for it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was fortunate. I think things lined up for me. I made it, got to play a couple of years against, you know, the best players, Tiger's best year on tour, I think ever was 2001, which is my rookie year. And, um, so I, I don't, I don't look back with any regrets. Um, had a couple near misses. I, I was leading LA on the back nine on Sunday in horrible weather. Um, I'll never forget that. You know, I, I choked, but it was my you know fifth event in my rookie season. I, I had a one shot lead and with seven holes to play. It's you know I'll, I'll never forget that feeling. But um, uh, I, I love what I, I love what I do now, and I love being able to play again the best golf courses in the world and, and pick and choose. And it's. You know, a lot of these guys will never get to play Pine Valley or Seminole or some of these places we're, you know, fortunate enough to play every year. I, I feel that we have left tons and tons on the uh, on uh, not discussed. I mean, there's tons of things about Pine Valley and Seminole and, and what you're going to do in 2020 and all sorts of things. So I hope we can do it again soon because sure. I, I think we got to. We've got to talk a little bit more uh, Kansas basketball. I know that you want to you want to get into that. So, um, but let's uh, yeah, let's try and do it again soon. And uh, Mike, I appreciate you uh, joining uh, joining me here at the back of the range. Yeah, Ben. Anytime. Enjoyed uh, chatting with you, and and uh, all the best to the Jayhawks. Yes. And there you have it. Special thanks to Mike Muir for joining us this week here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. Great story. Going to be following him a lot this summer as he competes on the national level on the cocktail circuit. Don't forget, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Going to have a lot of information detailing my experience at the Latin America Amateur Championship. We'll see you again next week for another episode here at the Back of the Range.